Welcome to a compelling episode of the Latino Business Report. In this installment, we are honored to have Tina Cordova as a returning guest. Over the past 18 years, Tina has passionately championed the cause of New Mexico families exposed to radiation from the first nuclear test explosion in 1945. Now, 78 years after Oppenheimer's test, we discover that people and infants are still contracting and battling cancer because of this first atomic test explosion. The U.S. government seemingly is indifferent to the plight of the predominantly Latino and indigenous communities in New Mexico who are exposed to deadly levels of radiation. 78 years, five generations later, our government has failed to acknowledge or implement measures to address this ongoing health crisis. In this podcast, we embark on an eye-opening journey to unveil the untold story of Oppenheimer's test site. We shine a light on how Latino families and indigenous people in the region were kept in the dark about their perilous exposure to high levels of radiation. Join us for an episode that exposes a narrative that deserves widespread attention. Welcome to the Latino Business Report. This podcast covers business, people, and issues of the day from a Latino perspective. The Latino Business Report is brought to you by TAMAC, the Texas Association of Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce. TAMAC is the leading Hispanic business organization in Texas since 1975. Now for your host, J.R. Gonzalez. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode. My name is J.R. Gonzalez, and I'm the host for Latino Business Report. Today's episode, we're going to be talking with Tina Cordova out of New Mexico. Tina is the co-founder of the Tula Rosa Basin Downwinders Organization. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. And Tina, welcome, and can you tell us a little bit about what your organization does? You bet, J.R. First of all, let me just say thank you for inviting me back it's a, a pleasure to be with you again. I'm glad to have this opportunity. So the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, or TBDC for short, is a grassroots organization that was founded 18 years ago to bring attention to the negative health effects suffered by the people of New Mexico as a result of being overexposed to radiation from the first atomic bomb detonated any place in the world. It was detonated in south central New Mexico, July 16, 1945. And we had people living as close as 12 miles to the test site, mostly Mexicanos and Native Americans, and they didn't warn anybody before or afterwards. And for 78 years now, we've been left out here on our own to deal with the health consequences, and the health consequences have been uh, absolutely horrific. As a matter of uh, fact, I'm the fourth generation in my family to have cancer since 1945, and I have a 23-year-old niece now, just recently diagnosed with thyroid cancer. It's up, upended her life. She lives in California and goes to college there. And now we have five generations in my family, and our family's not unique. Uh, we've documented hundreds of families just like, just like mine all across the state of New Mexico that are exhibiting four and five generations of cancer since 1945. And so, that cancer was not present in the... Uh in the family genealogy prior to 1945? No, absolutely not. Great, great observation, JR. When my two great-grandfathers that were alive at the time of the bomb in Tularosa, the little village I was born in, 45 miles from the Trinity site, when they were alive, they were alive at the time of the bomb and within 10 years of Trinity, they both died from what was called stomach cancer at a time when no one had ever heard the word cancer in our community. And it's kind of interesting. My mom tells me and my dad told me as well that they remember how sick their grandfathers got and how they, they passed away rather quickly. Uh, they sent them to El Paso where they were told they had stomach cancer. They were given morphine and they were sent home to die. There was no treatment. Um, literally a lot of suffering and then death. My mom says she remembers distinctly that her mother would force her to go see her grandfather. And she said, Tina, I was so afraid that I would catch whatever he had because we had never heard the word cancer and he was so sick. And I thought, how is it that I'm going to visit and not catch whatever it is he has? So that gives you an idea of how wow. this was, you know, the first time people had heard those words. It's hard to believe. And Tina, yes, um, thank you so much for being on the on the podcast again. 
We actually did our first podcast. I looked it up. We did March of 2022. It's been about, a, about almost a year and a half. And for the listeners, I really encourage you to go back into our archives. And it's episode 27. And the podcast we recorded back in March of 2022 is titled uh, Before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, There Was New Mexico. And it talks about the first nuclear explosion. We're going to be talking about that a little bit today, but we definitely want to talk about the movie Oppenheimer, some of the things it brought to light, but more importantly, some of the things it didn't bring to light. I also want to talk about your nonprofit, what you guys are doing to try to not relieve, but help mitigate some of the situations going on with just this horrific generation after generation of cancer and medical issues that, that people are facing. So let's go ahead and start off. First of all, I know the answer already, but did you see the movie Oppenheimer? I sure did. I uh, screened the movie with about 100 other people in Santa Fe, and then I participated on a panel um, with some other people, local people, who had an interest in the subject matter. Subject matter, And um, I have to tell you, I experienced a great deal of anxiety and anticipation of, of actually watching the film. I was conflicted about whether I wanted to see it, but I truly believed that watch, watching this film uh, would bring me as close to the, the, the events of that day as I would ever get. And, you know, JR, I, I've lost count of the number of people who have told me their oral histories about that day. Because at one time, when I started this work 18 years ago, we still had a lot of people alive who experienced it. But that generation, they were children at the time. They're gone. They've all died from cancer. My dad is a good example of that. And so I really did think, I believed, seeing the film was a necessity, and I believed it'll bring me as close to the day's events as I'll ever be myself. And um, I wept. I openly wept during those scenes uh, about Trinity. It was um, a release of a lot of anxiety that I was feeling about watching the movie and uh, sort of a release of, of just an enormous load that I carry because so many people have died that started out on this journey with me 18 years ago. And so it was, it was an interesting it was an interesting day. I have lots of feelings about the Oppenheimer movie. It's kind of a roller coaster of emotions up and down. The um, well, obviously, the world lo- likes the movie. I mean, it's one of the most popular movies out there. I think the only other movie doing better than Oppenheimer worldwide is what Barbie. Uh, completely Correct. different subject. Completely different subject matters. But as we look at Oppenheimer, I think that you know, new generations are seeing for the first time some of the things that happened, you know, historically. But what I noticed in the movie, it was a great movie. I enjoyed the movie, a long movie. Um, but there's so much that was left out. And I, I want to talk to you about that. What are, I noticed a lot of things, but what are some of the things that, that you notice or know um, for a fact that were kind of left out of the movie that definitely affected our, our community, our Latino community? Well, first of all, let me say this. If you watched the movie and you saw the establishment of the Manhattan Project and Los Alamos Labs, and then the detonation of the bomb at Trinity, they portrayed all of these things as though they took place in a vacuum, right? They never portrayed a single New Mexican. And let me explain what I mean. We were the people, the Mexicanos and the Native Americans that live here, we were the people that did all the dirty work in advance of, of the Manhattan Project and the Trinity Test. We built the roads and the bridges and the facilities, and then we became the janitors that that cleaned those facilities. Um, you know, men lost their lives in explosive accidents during that those years that they were, you know, developing and testing nuclear devices. And then our women were bussed up to Los Alamos, and we're the ones that cooked every meal cleaned the houses, changed every diaper, fed every baby bottle. Obviously, you saw the movie. Kitty mm-hmm. Oppenheimer wasn't the best mother. And that was not unusual. A lot of these women had never had uh, to raise their kids. Um, and so we were the women that were the domestics that did all that work. We were the same people that built the facilities around Trinity. We were the people that lived 12 miles from the Trinity site. And you don't see any of that in the movie. It's as if it took place in a vacuum. And just as a fine example, 
the Pajarito Plateau, which is where they established Los Alamos Labs, they show Robert Oppenheimer looking out over this vast expanse of nothingness and saying, this is, you know, basically, we're going to establish it here. Well, that's absolutely inaccurate. On the Pajarito Plateau lived over 30 families, mostly Mexicanos and Native Americans, who had lived there for generations. They raised animals, they had crops, they lived very good lives, actually. And what happened was the government came in, stripped them of their land, gave them $7 an acre, slaughtered their- $7 an acre? A whole $7 an acre, okay. A whole $7 an acre, slaughtered their animals, burned their crops, and sent them packing. They were never able to reestablish a life or a livelihood that that was anything close to what they had on the Pajarito Plateau. And, and they probably and been the, living, and their families had probably been living there for generations. Their families had been living there for generations. In modern times, some of those families sued the government for reparations because of how they were treated. And I'm not an expert in that area, but I do know that families received reparations in modern times for the way that they were treated and and for the way that they were cheated out of their land, the land that rightfully belonged to them. And so, you know, you don't see that at all. And then the other thing about the Oppenheimer movie is you don't see how there was such a total disregard for the human health, the health of the people of New Mexico. We're the only state that has always been a minority majority state. Over 60% of the people that live here are people of color, mostly Mexicanos and Native Americans. And you don't see any of that in this movie. Like I said, it's as if it took place in a vacuum. But the same thing happened in southern New Mexico around the the Trinity site. They ran people off their land. And uh, a lot of them were Anglo ranchers, ranching families. And they ran them off their land. I had a, a man call me recently to tell me about his family's history. And, and he said, Tina, they would let us run our cattle out there, even though they took us, took the land from us. They would let us run our cattle out there and hunt out there. And he said, everybody in my family's had cancer. My folks, my brothers, my, si- my sisters, me, my aunts, my uncles, everybody's had cancer. How dare them? He said, you know, they, they knew it was dangerous, but they didn't care. And we didn't understand that it was dangerous. And so you don't see any of that in, in the Oppenheimer right. film. One of the things I say, JR, is that our government invaded our lands and our lives when they established the Manhattan Project here and detonated the Trinity bomb and they changed everything for forevermore. And when they came here to film Oppenheimer, they did the same thing. They invaded our lands and our lives. They used our lands, our landscapes, our tax incentives because New Mexico has lucrative tax incentives. They used everything, our local workforce. They filmed this movie, a blockbuster, like you said, it, I understand it's grossed close to a billion dollars worldwide. And they wouldn't even put a panel at the end of the film simply recognizing the sacrifice and the suffering of the people of New Mexico. And we reached out to them on the highest levels. Um, Kai Bird was one well, of the you, well, you said You said you had an opportunity to screen the movie before it came out. I, I, I saw the movie at the exact days that it came out. In the okay exact weekend that it came out but what i knew ahead of time was that we had local production people people from new mexico that worked on the production and in the in in you know they were not extras these were people who actually helped find us they they were scouts for locations they worked on the production side and they took our request to the movie makers the filmmakers the producers and they said you know these people are just wondering if you would consider this and then i'm friends with olivia fermi her grandfather was enrico fermi the person that split the first atom and she contacted me and she said we need to reach them do you know about this film and i said you know have at it maybe the last name fermi will have more influence than the last name cordova because i've tried so she engaged Kai Bird, and he's one of the authors of American Prometheus, the book that the movie was based on. And he said, let me reach out to them. And this was in January of 2023, so before the movie was released. He got back to us and said, they're not interested. They don't want to mention anything about the people of New Mexico. So exploitation, JR. This is nothing more than exploitation. So let's, let's go back. This was 1945. And in 1945, a lot of those folks living there we're pretty much living off the land. I mean, you didn't have refrigeration. You didn't have all the USDA recommendations and stuff. 
when the atom bomb was tested and you had that first nuclear explosion there in New Mexico, that fallout, I mean, just that radioactive ash fell all over the land. So that means it fell into your drinking water. It fell into your fields and your crops and your grass. And those animals were going out eating that, ingesting that. And then, of course, then they were slaughtered and human would human beings would consume them. So that whole cycle of radioactive whatever you call it, was in the people's system, which caused a lot of that cancer. So knowing, I know we didn't know that back then, but knowing that today, is there anything happening to try to at least acknowledge or help the generations of people in New Mexico that have been suffering from this for so long? You described it perfectly. In 1945, we didn't have running water and we didn't have refrigeration. We had no electricity. You described it perfectly. So the that, the fallout from Trinity was significant. The The bomb at, at Trinity didn't produce destruction. It produced massive fallout. They never detonated a bomb like Trinity again because of that. They knew they had overexposed people here. I mean, there's that famous saying by one of the physicians assigned to the test that was something like, we probably overexposed lots of people to radiation, but they didn't. They couldn't prove it and we couldn't prove it. So we believed we just got away with it. So our water was contaminated, just like you described. All of our environment was contaminated. So everything we ate, you know, was now laced with radiation. And, and we didn't know. They Like I said, we didn't, didn't know, know what radiation was back then, did we? No one knew. There was a so rancher. How- <laughs> there was a rancher, JR, that this is in the history books. Uh, they went out to his ranch. He lived close to the test site. A few days later, they came out. They were de- dressed in what back then was safety gear with their rudimentary Geiger counters, they're looking for radiation. And he says, what are you all doing? And they said, we're checking for radiation. And he said, you won't find any here because we don't own a radio. And, you know, that's how <laughs> little was known, right? Uh-huh. And you can't, you know what, JR, that just brings me to this. They counted on people back then to be uneducated, uneducated unsophisticated. They took, adv- they took advantage of ignorance. Exactly. Unable to stick up for themselves. They took advantage of people's ignorance and walked away because no one even stuck, no one even stuck around 24 hours after the bomb. And so everything we ate, everything we were drinking, we were even absorbing it through our skin, inhaling it. We were maximally exposed because of our lifestyles. Tina, in the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Your question was what's being done today? Nothing. Nothing's ever been done. <laughs> the government's never come back. I mean, we're we're fighting right now in Congress, and you and I can talk about that in a moment, but we're fighting right now for partial payment of restitution. Um, but other other than the fight that we're in the middle of right now, nothing's ever been done, Jay. The government's never provided any any medical services, any clinics, any any checkups to see if, you know, you have cancer or in danger. I mean, nothing. Not, not, no screening, no assistance with anything. And let me tell you something. About a month ago, uh, one of our members of Congress was in New Mexico with an expert who brought some information back to us that was mind blowing. Uh, New Mexico is the state carrying, it's one of the states carrying the highest medical debt in the country. We have about 2 million people living in New Mexico, and we're carrying $881 million, almost a billion dollars in medical debt. Imagine that. Wow. Yeah, imagine that. And it's not, it's not, for me, it's not hard to believe because I've collected thousands of health surveys and people say the same thing. They're using Medicaid or Medicare to access healthcare because they can't work, they lose their jobs, they lose their insurance, and it costs them everything. They have to travel. We travel to we travel to Texas all the time for medical care. We go to El Paso, MD Anderson. You know, I have a good friend right now who his family is taking his nine-month-old grandson to MD Anderson in Houston for chemotherapy. This little boy's been on chemo at MD Anderson since he was two months old, JR. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. Tina, in the first episode that we recorded back in March of 2022, episode number 27, uh, guys, please go back and listen to that if you get a chance. Um, Episode number 27, before Hiroshima and Narasaki, there was New Mexico. You talked about a story that is stuck in my mind, and I want you, if you wouldn't mind, sharing that story with me, of the girls' camp 
that was out camping that weekend or that time when the bomb was detonated? Can you can you give us a recount of that story? You bet. So there was a woman from El Paso, Texas. Her name's Barbara Kent. And she grew up in El Paso and was uh, scheduled to be in Riodoso, New Mexico, where a lot of people come from Texas to vacation. A lot of vacation homes owned there by people from Texas. She uh, was scheduled to be there on July 16th, 1945 for a girls dance camp. So her mother and brother drove her from El Paso. A lot of the roads were dirt roads. So they got there and they decided they were going to stay over also. And they dropped her off at the girls' camp on July 15th, right? So July 16th, early in the morning, 5.30 a.m. before daylight, they experience a blast that knocks them out of their bunks, right? She, she clearly says, we were knocked out of our bunks. They were scared to death. They ran outside. The camp host finally was able to get the girls to settle down and go back into their rooms, And then later that day, they put their bathing suits on and went down to the creek that was adjacent to the the camp where they were staying. And there was an ash falling from the sky. And it's July. And she says, it looks just like snow. And we're thinking this is snow. But how could it be snow? It's July. And she said, we were rubbing it all over our bodies. We were even sticking out our tongues and catching the ash on our tongues. And it was warm. And she said, then some boys that saw us playing out there came and they were trying to make it into snowballs to throw at us and it wouldn't pack together. And she said it was just the craziest thing. But she said, of all those girls, I'm the only one surviving and most of them died before the age of 40. And Barbara is in her 90s. She's had multiple different cancers. She's had multiple miscarriages. Her daughters all have cancer. And what's more amazing, JR, is her brother and mother who took her to Rio Doso, who also experienced the blast and the fallout, both got brain tumors. So 100% of her family that was present in this community, about 60 miles from ground zero, all had negative health effects associated with their exposure to radiation. And that's not normal, JR. I always tell people these aren't normal histories. The statistics don't, they just don't add up in one family. And then, so what that ash was, that was radioactive ash falling from a result of the explosion and these kids not knowing any better and adults were just kind of thinking of some weird phenomenon. Let's kind of, Oh, it's warm snow. Let's play with it. Exactly. And to their detriment. And again, no warning before or afterwards. And Barbara always says that that day, uh, the day of July 16th, later in the day, there was like a community meeting that she remembers going to where they told everybody it was nothing to worry about. And the government had actually already concocted uh, a story that they were spreading that basically said an ammunition dump had exploded on what was called the Alamogordo bombing range, but there was no loss of life and nothing to worry about. And that was a radioactive ash that fell from the sky at, for days afterwards. JR, the fireball that was created by the bomb, they, they have estimated went between 40 and 80,000 feet high. So Wow. It penetrated the stratosphere. And a, a scientist at Princeton just recently used today's technology to recreate the blast and the fallout. And he has already reported, this is under peer review, it's going to be published in a scientific journal very soon. He has already reported that the fallout from Trinity went to 46 states, Mexico and Canada. It affected our whole country. And then it got in the stratosphere and it, it traveled all around the globe. It ruined film that was in Indiana, JR, as it left New Mexico. So imagine the people living in Okay, okay, stop, back up. How It ruined film in Indiana? Explain that to me. So Kodak had a, a, a factory in Indiana where they made film, and they actually would use local river water to wash the cardboard that was used to package film. And right after Trinity, film had been packaged in this cardboard and the cardboard had radiation on it and it it destroyed all this film and Kodak contacted the government and said is there anything that could have happened that led to this and they admitted finally that they had detonated an atomic bomb and the radiation had had damaged film as far away as Indiana and that's very well written about that's in the history books also and so in the in the future after this because Kodak was a partner to our government as they went about detonating bombs at the Nevada test site afterwards, where they detonated 93 bombs were detonated in Nevada that actually fissioned, they would 
they would contact Kodak and say, you need to protect stuff because we're detonating a bomb and it's likely to lead to fallout that will cause losses for you. But they never warned the people. <laughs> so industry got the warning. The people got screwed. Let's warn big business, but not the common person and the everyday worker. Okay. Now, Tina, I'm excited your group or you've been involved in the making of a documentary. Can you tell us about that? You bet. So there's a woman producer from Santa Fe. Her name is <clears throat> Lois Lipman. Lois actually has been following us for the better part of the last seven years. She's videoed, she's, ha she's taken video of us all across the country. I mean, she's gone with us to DC when I testified in Congress. She's gone with us everywhere. She's gone to California to, to record Barbara Kent and another young man that's profiled in the film uh, named Trevor. She's gone all the way to Germany to get original Potsdam uh, video. I mean, she's gone amazing places to, to, to get all that she needs, archival footage that she needs. And she's put together the most amazing, amazing, beautiful documentary about the New Mexico downwinders and our fight for justice. And so the film is going to premiere at the Santa Fe International Film Festival on October 20th. And then they have, that's the first screening. And then they have multiple screenings on Sunday, the 22nd. But I'm really excited because from there, we're going to Austin, Texas. And so the Austin uh, Film Festival will have a premiere of the film on the 27th of October. And then I believe it, it has screenings subsequent to that on the 31st of October. And our documentary, which is called First We Bombed New Mexico, uh, is the counter narrative to the Oppenheimer film. It's the people's history of what happened when Robert Oppenheimer came to New Mexico to do his science with all the other scientists and detonate a bomb in our backyard and leave. It's the counter narrative to that. Well, definitely excited that you're going to be well excited about the film, about the documentary, excited that you're going to be in Austin because... I'm going to be at that showing. Where's that showing? How can people find out more information about your film and where it's going to be in different parts of the country? Well, they can go to the website for the uh, Santa Fe International Film Festival for starters. And then they can also go to the website for the Austin Film Festival. And then you can Google search first, we bombed New Mexico, and you'll be able to get to Lois's website. And honestly, I'm, I'm drawing a blank at the moment as to what her website address is. Okay. But first, we bombed New Mexico, and they have a website for it. And we, we also have a sc screenings coming up in St. Louis at a film festival there. And we're picking up every film festival that will take us. What we hope to do, JR, is use the film to catalyze Congress into doing the right thing by the New Mexico downwinders and adding us to what's called the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. The film is beautiful. Um, it profiles several families that have dealt with horrendous, the horrendous effects of being overexposed to radiation. Barbara Kent is in the, in the film. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful film, but you will not leave there uh, without shedding a tear. It's, it's very sad. It, it really does uh, reveal the truth about the harm done to people, American citizens, in the process of our government developing the, the bombs and um, testing and developing nuclear devices. It's. Let me ask you a question, Tina. Um, I don't really want to go down this trail too much, but I think it's a question that I have that others may have. This happened. It was terrible. The government for the past 78 years has pretty much ignored it. You and others have been working for two decades to try to get some attention and, and some um, some exposure of what's going on to maybe try to, to help mitigate some of this stuff. But do you think this situation, the same situation would occur if it wasn't a group of indigenous people and Mexicans and Mexican-Americans? If this was a white community, would this type of negligence from the U.S. government occur? Well, I, I firmly believe that there was a level of environmental racism associated with them establishing the Manhattan Project here and testing the bomb at Trinity. I think that there's no doubt in, 
in my, well, there's no doubt in my mind that that's one of the reasons that it's been so easy to look away from us for 78 years because of a level of environmental racism. Uh, New Mexico has the cradle to grave process taking place here. We have 1,000 abandoned mine and mill sites, uranium mine and mill sites, primarily on Native American lands, indigenous lands. Thousands of people were affected by that, JR. They, they truly gave no concern for these people's health as they sent them into these mines to extract uranium. And we have these abandoned sites where they're still raising children adjacent to them. They've never mitigated. Most of them are, not, are, are left unmitigated. They still are radioactive. We don't know to what extent. Um, so there's a level of environmental racism. And I think that we do need to recognize and sort of unpackage a lot of things these days. Obviously, mistakes were made when our government went about doing this. But I, I say this on a regular basis, and I, I definitely want to say this now. New Mexico has given everything to this JR. Just so you know, during World War II, uh, New Mexico per capita had the highest number of people enlisted into the service of our country. We had the highest number of casualties. We bought more war bonds than any other state. My grandfather's buried in Belgium. You know, he gave his life mm -hmm. in service. And I say all the time, we were enlisted, those people living here we're enlisted into the service of our country as part of this experiment. We're innocent victims, but we were definitely enlisted and we've given everything we have to this. And our color, the color of our skin should not be, it should not be a factor in the equation of justice. I can tell you that the fund that's been set up for, that was set up 33 years ago, that's been taking care of downwinders from other places, has not been extended to people that look like me. It's been mostly, you know, white ranching families that lived in Utah, parts of Utah, Arizona, and Nevada. But it, it's not people that look like me. Tina, in 1945, where World War II was going on, it was towards the end of the war, of course, um, due to the bomb. But what would you say to the person who made the argument that it was necessary to do that it's a shame that it happened, but these, uh, if we didn't do this, if we didn't, if this wouldn't have occurred, the war would have gone on and thousands and thousands of, of soldiers would have died. So what I, I get, I mean, people bring that up with me a lot. And what I tell people is we have to unpackage these two things, JR, because they're distinctly different. We have American citizens being enlisted into the service of our country without consent or knowledge, no warning before or afterwards, no assistance whatsoever. And then we have the war effort. And so I always tell everybody 78 years later, we have to be able to unpackage these two things and look at this through a different lens. Now I'm not here to discuss, or it is not my position to, to take about whether it was necessary to end the war all I am here to say is that in our country's development and testing of nuclear devices, American citizens were horribly harmed. And it's time for our government to admit mistakes were made and atone for that. It's, it's, it's that black and white. I don't want to have discussions about the rest of this because I think it's time that we unpackage the two things and, and, Clearly, I always say, I don't have to explain to people the difference between right and wrong. Um, I think that when people hear this history, they realize how wrong it is to literally invade someone's life and to change the course of their family and their family's history for, for the remainder of time um, and to set them up for, for this kind of tragedy is, is just wrong. It's just wrong. And it's, it's, it's exceedingly wrong that no one has ever come back to make it right. The proof to what I've been saying, JR, is in the fact that there are now five generations in my family dealing with cancer. When I reflect on the idea that my 23-year-old niece now has her life upended, now is having to deal with, with things that, God forbid, anybody's 23-year-old child has to deal with, it makes me realize that there's not a single one of us 
that that is ever going to escape this. This is not going to end for us anytime soon. And we don't ask if we're going to get cancer. We ask when it's going to be when. our turn. When? Wow. And I can't help but not keep thinking about that nine-year-old who's been in chemotherapy since age two. No, he, a nine-month-old. Oh, nine-month-old. Nine-month-old that's been on chemo since two months old. Two months old. Okay. JR, in my community of Tularosa, I know of two families right now that have little ones that are very young. There's the nine-month-old little boy who's going through chemo at MD Anderson. There's another family with a two-year-old granddaughter. They just removed one of her eyes because she has eye cancer and her other eye is at risk. And when I think of stuff like that, you know, I think, how can this be okay? How, and we, what we're seeing right now, JR, is younger people getting sick all the time. I have another member of my steering committee and she just notified me about a week and a half ago that she has an 18 year old nephew now with thyroid cancer. And so it's manifesting in younger people all the time. And, and so what that says to me is that these, these young people have the genetics for this. They've inherited the genetics because if it's genetics, it can manifest at any age. If it's due to your exposure to radiation, there's a latency period. You know, how, how that's been explained to me about my dad, JR, is my dad was four years old at the time that that he was living in Tularosa and they, they detonated the bomb. My dad used to consume mass quantities of cow's milk. So, um, you know, a, a person that studies these kinds of things told me once, a health physicist told me once, it's not that hard to understand because my dad got cancer at the base of his tongue and he didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't use chewing tobacco, had no viruses. I always say, my dad got a cancer similar to Robert Oppenheimer, except my dad didn't chain smoke and he never drank a martini. Um, and He just drank a lot of milk. He drank a lot of milk. And you know what they told me? The radiation settled in the glands of his neck because he drank all that milk and it started to give off radiation there, damaging you know, cells, damaging tissue, and eventually turning into cancer. My dad got oral cancer twice, JR, without risk factors. And when I asked the oncologist, how does this happen? They said, we can't explain it, but what we can tell you is we see a lot of it in New Mexico. Wow. And, and so, you know, it, it's, it's a huge tragedy. It is. It is. And, and Tina, as a reminder, you're, you're a cancer survivor yourself, right? That is correct. I, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer at the age of 39. And the first thing they asked me was, when were you exposed to radiation? <laughs> I wasn't, but my grandfather was. Well, and Jeez. I told him, I told him, I don't know, but I live 45 miles away. The crows fly from the Trinity test site and come to find out, JR, come to find out. I likely got cancer uh, from being exposed to the fallout from the Nevada test site because by the time we started testing at Nevada, they put monitoring stations all over the United States, but mainly in the American West. And New Mexico got fallout from Nevada time and time again. They they tested, like I said, 93 devices there above ground. And that fallout went into the atmosphere and it went everywhere, including probably to, to where you live in Texas. I mean, I'm pretty yeah. sure. So, you know, it's, this is not an unusual thing and it's not hard to understand when you, when you learn that kind of history. Now that Trinity test site now, is it like a tourist attraction, isn't it? Oh my gosh, JR. Great question. (laughs) (laughs) So because of Oppenheimer. That's that's not on my bucket list at this point. Wow. Can you imagine? But literally they open the site twice a year to visitors there's still there's signs everywhere that warn of the radiological danger, right? Big signs posted everywhere. Enter at your own risk. Do not pick up anything or take anything out of here because you will be federally prosecuted. And there are armed guards there to make sure you don't pick anything up and take it out of there because there's still Trinitite on the ground. But they'll sell you a hamburger and a hot dog and a Coke. They'll and let a your ticket, kids- And a ticket for admission. Exactly. And your kids can roll around in the dirt and your dogs and, and, you know, and it, and they make it seem like it's all hunky dory. Right. And I always tell people, imagine entering a space where there's radiological danger signs every place. And there are signs that say, you know, if you get caught taking anything out of here, you're going to be federally prosecuted. 
and feeling like you're safe. I, I happen to know, I've never been inside. We go as close as, it's called the Stallion Gate entrance, and we, we stage a peaceful demonstration. It's coming up next weekend. A week from today, I will be positioned outside the Trinity Site Gate with my family and friends and all of the other people that work with me on this, and we'll have our signs, and we'll greet the thousands of people that will go in. Somewhere between six and 8,000 people will enter. It's bumper-to-bumper traffic. We have to have police staged there to keep things under control. And we'll greet people there and make sure that they understand that there is a counter narrative to the science and industry and the idea that, because they say this all the time, no one lived here, no one was harmed. It was remote and uninhabited. But JR, guess what? A student from the University of New Mexico did a a project for me a few years ago where he took the 1940 census data and he positioned, you know, Trinity on the map of New Mexico, drew these incremental radiuses around Trinity in 10 mile increments all the way to 150 miles. And at 50 miles from the Trinity site, there were 13,000 children, women and men living there. 13,000. That's not remote and uninhabited. If you increase that to 150 miles, guess what, JR? It encompasses Albuquerque and and, and Santa Fe to the north, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez to the south. They were inside the 150 mile radius. So that's half a million people. That is not remote and uninhabited, JR. Definitely not. Definitely not. Tina, is there anything that we can do? Well, first of all, I would say to everybody listening, buy a ticket to go to the Austin Film Festival and see the film. And then share your feedback with the film festival. Talk to people who do media. Help us to get this film seen everywhere. That's that's for starters. Secondly, The Radiation Exposure Compensation Act is set to sunset in June of 2024. We have no time, JR. We're going to run out of time. I always say we're going to run out of luck and run out of time. If that program sunsets, they'll never reinstitute it. Just recently, July 27th of this year, the U.S. Senate voted 61 to 37. That never happens. 61 to 37 to add the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act. Senator Cruz from Texas supported. Call Senator Cruz's office and let him know how much you appreciate that. But now we have to get the same thing done in the House, and we don't have enough support in the House. So people who are listening to this can reach out to their members of the U.S. House of Representatives, and it's easy to find your member. You can make a phone call, you can send an email, and you can tell them that it's very important to you that we keep the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act amendments, or RECA amendments, included in the National Defense Authorization Act. I just want to say hats off to Senator Cruz for voting in favor. We've been working for a very long time with his staff to do that. But especially in Texas, we have a a huge number of Republican uh, House members that could be instrumental in helping us keep this. So it's definitely a, it's no doubt a, a bipartisan issue. Um, Oh, it's a bipartisan. It's a bi. So JR, I'm so glad you just said that. This is low-hanging fruit for our Congress. The Senate has already passed it. This is a non-partisan issue that needs to be taken up in a bipartisan fashion in the House the same way that has been done in the Senate. And why do I say that? Because exposure to radiation is not discerning. It affects the young, the old, the male, the female, the black, the white, the Republican and the Democrat alike. And so if somebody thinks they're, you know, that it's just an issue for a certain group of people, it's not, it's not, it's, it's an issue for everybody who lives in a downwind state. And right now we're trying to add for the first time ever, New Mexico, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, and all of Arizona, Utah, and Nevada, and also Guam, where they did the testing in the Pacific Islands. Tina, if this act were to pass, what what benefits would you get there in New Mexico and what benefits would the people who have contracted cancer for generations received, if any? Well, first of all, well, first of all, it's not an open-ended uh, program. It will the program will coincide. Your qualification into the program will coincide with the time frame 
at which they were doing above ground testing. In New Mexico, it'll be 1944 through 1963. Um, and, and what that means is that you will have to, first of all, prove that you lived for one year in New Mexico during that time frame, and you have one of the compensable cancers. It also doesn't cover, cover all cancers, but there's about 19 cancers that it does cover. Um, the other thing is, you, and then you, you can apply on behalf of a deceased loved one. So if they meet that criteria, then you can apply on their behalf. Aside from that, what, what happens is you will qualify for the very best health coverage available any place in the world. No co-payments, no co-insurance, no deductibles, no questions asked. If you need a lung transplant and they do it in, you know, Kentucky, they take you there. They take your family there. You would also qualify for a one-time payment of what's called uh, partial restitution of $150,000. It was the first President Bush that signed this into law in 1990. And he said, this is a compassionate payment of restitution. The last thing that would happen is that it would establish what are called radiation exposure screening and education clinics, place a place where we could go annually to be screened for cancer. Why is that important? Because vast parts of New Mexico are rural places without any kind of health care. There's no health care in Tularosa. So you can never be diagnosed or treated for cancer there. There's no health care in Carrizozo, Socorro, San Antonio, all these little towns surrounding Trinity. But you would be able to go someplace and you would be able to be screened annually. And that helps a lot because if things are caught earlier, you have a, a better prognosis, you have a better outcome. And so those screening clinics are very, very vital to us and very important. And we, we, this, is what would, we, this is what we would be the beneficiaries of. Instead of that huge medical debt I spoke about earlier, mm -hmm. a number of us were quali would qualify for this assistance, which is long overdue and which will restore some level. It'll be some level of restorative justice pe uh, for, for families, for individuals and for families and for communities, JR. Well, it sounds like a lot of care, but in retrospect, after 78 years of negligence and all the people who have, I mean, this is life and death. I mean, we have suffered. So gosh, um, let us know what we can do, Tina. One, the um, podcast notes, we'll, we'll put a, uh, a link to your website. Uh, definitely let's stay in touch. I look forward to seeing you in Austin, Texas at the film festival. I'm looking forward to seeing this. Now, for those that are in different parts of the country and can't buy a ticket to come to Austin, is there any way they can encourage the film to get to them? Or is there plans of this going on, on Netflix or Hulu or, or prime in the, in the near future? What, what are the, uh, what does the future look like after the film festival circuit for the movie? I'm certainly not an expert in how these things uh, move, but what I can tell you is we, the producer is working as we speak to get in front of a streaming platform so that the, the film will be picked up by something like Netflix or Hulu or, uh, you know, any of the other, there's a multitude, HBO, etc. So we're working to do that. The, the producer is working to do that. Eventually, the film will be available that way, JR. I really do believe that to be true. The film is, um, it's top, it's top notch. It was very well done, very well produced, very well edited. Um, and so just keep an eye out. Over the next, I would say, six months, this film will, will end up being on a streaming platform also, as you, like I said earlier, if, if you do get a chance to see it in Austin, make sure that you, you know, spread the word about the film, uh, comment to the film festival about how, how it touched you, if it does. Um, talk to media, uh, every, you know, talk, talk on social media about this. Let's get this word out there so that uh, so that people understand the issue. I have to tell you that right after Oppenheimer opened, I have a good friend who tracks social media and we were getting a lot of exposure, right? Inadvertently, the Oppenheimer movie brought a lot of exposure to us. You know, we, we had an editorial in the New York Times. We'd been on countless podcasts. We had a front page article in the Washington Post. Um, and all of that was inadvertent. And one of my friends that 
that tracks social media contacted me within that first seven days of Oppenheimer opening. And she said, you know, what's tracking right now on social media about Oppenheimer. And I said, what? She said the word downwinder. It's like 90% of what's tracking right now. And I was shocked. And, And we need that. We need that JR. We need, we need more people to understand this issue we need more people to support us. Our website is www.trinitydownwinders. That's plural, trinitydownwinders.com. Please go to our website. You'll find out more than you'll ever want to know. Um, there's so many family histories there. There's lots of press information there. There's a health survey if you happen to identify as a downwinder and just want to get a health survey to us because JR, let's let's you know let's not forget New Mexico and Texas have a very porous border. Lots of people from New Mexico live in Texas, lots of people. So I know as a matter of fact that there's probably countless people from New Mexico living in Texas right now that identify as downwinders and were affected by this. I get health surveys from Texas, by the way. Um, So those are some of the things that people can do, but I would just highly encourage, and you can go to our website and all the messaging is there about how to reach out to Congress. And there's links so that you can find your member of Congress. We make it very easy for people. Um, please join with us and, uh, you know, let your members of Congress know that the RECA amendments to the NDAA are vitally important to you as, as an American citizen who just absolutely understands the injustice of this. Well, Tina, thank you so much, first of all, for doing what you do. I mean, we've known each other for, what, about 25, 26 years. In the past 18 years you've been doing this, I mean, I take my hat off to you, take my hat off to you, and thank you for the work you're doing to bring this to everybody's attention. Folks, my name is J.R. Gonzalez. You've been listening to the Latino Business Report. This episode has gone a little longer than most, but that's okay. It's an important subject. The movie Oppenheimer was long, too, because there's a lot to tell. But, Tina, I look forward to seeing you. Uh, I look forward to tracking this. And by all means, when this thing um, goes on a streaming platform, let's get you back. And as we get closer to the vote, and let's let's get you back and let's talk about this some more because I think this is a an interesting subject, uh, not only to me, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners find it very interesting of what's going on. And the fact that 78 years of being just ignored and neglected, just it's not the American way. It's really not. I know there's a lot of things going on in the world, folks, and a lot of um, things that need attention, but there's no reason why U.S. citizens, people who have become casualties, if you will, back from 1945 during World War II are still suffering today. At least their um, their family line is, is suffering because a lot of those folks who were originally exposed are no longer with us. Um, you can find uh, this episode and all our episodes on the latinobusinessreport.com website. You can also find our entire library of work on Latino Business Report on YouTube. Uh, on the website, latinobusinessreport.com, there are places where you can sign up for a newsletter. You can also communicate with me directly over there for the comments. I encourage you to give us a comment. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. And we'll do whatever we can to improve the podcast. And as always, thank you for listening. We really appreciate your time and attention.